So last week, we said that Jesus was a small town guy. Uh, when God sent his son to the earth, born as a baby, the king of kings and lord of lords, he didn't have him born into a, a royal palace, into a big city of notoriety or influence perhaps, but he was born in Bethlehem, a small town of uh, no, no more than a thousand people in population. Jesus lived in Nazareth, a place of uh, historians tell us they reckon was about 300 people in population. He lived there until the age of 30. So you think up until the age of 30, he was probably living with his mom and his brothers and sisters in a town where everybody knew his business, everybody knew his family and knew the reputation, everybody knew the suspicious uh, events that surrounded his birth. Uh, that's why at times he was um, insulted by, by people who used to insult him and say, oh, you're Mary's boy instead of Joseph's boy because, you know, there was that virgin birth scenario. Um, by age 30, he left. And moved, and we're going to be talking about that. Also, last week we were talking about this concept of walk, talk, and mix. That if you want to influence people, or particularly if you want to introduce people to Jesus, you need to have a good walk, you need to have a good talk, but also a good mix. You need to learn to just live around and live well with the people around you. And that those three things together, walk, talk, and mix, add up to influence, add up to people meeting Jesus, perhaps. And this week, I wanted to ask two questions. And I want to look at how to be a good local, how to be a good local. The two questions we're going to ask are, what, um, what did the locals think of Jesus? And then why did Jesus behave in the way that he did? So we've got those two questions under the banner of how to be a good local. Because we love the place that we live. We love where God has put us. Or if we don't, we know that we want to. We want God to give us a heart for the places that he's put us. Uh, we don't want to be those kinds of people who are always looking for the next thing. Who are always treating the present moment like it's basically a stepping stone to the next thing. I was with someone the other week who, who introduced me to the expression, blossom wherever you're planted. I thought that was a lovely expression. Do you want to blossom wherever you're planted? You want to put your roots down. You want to be a blessing. You want people to think well of you wherever you are. So we're talking a bit about that. But before we do that, I want us to gain a greater insight into Jesus' activity by looking at the, the gospel of Mark and just walking through it and just seeing um, I want us to go on a walkabout with Jesus, basically, so we can gain a greater insight into the man, where he lived and what he got up to. And so, behold the map. There it is. Behold the map. I love maps. Anybody else love maps? I could, yeah, we do. Maps are good. I could stare at maps all day. Um, so we're going to walk through the maps. This is the map of Israel, uh, the, the country that Jesus lived in, no bigger than Wales. A small place on, the, on planet Earth, on a tiny planet in a tiny galaxy in a bigger universe. Uh, Jesus lived around this area. If we go to the next map, there we go, zooming in a bit to the region of Galilee. And Jesus, up until the age of 30, was in Nazareth. If we click on the next slide, which was just here. And then age 30, he left Nazareth to go to the River Jordan, where he was baptized by his cousin John, basically as a means of saying, I'm getting going. I'm getting started. Whatever it is I came to do, I'm starting it now. And in Mark chapter 1, we read that Jesus... Um, hearing about his, hearing about John's arrest, left Nazareth. Or, or, hearing about John's arrest, then left from, left Nazareth and went to the region of Galilee. The Bible says, and from there he lived in Capernaum, or at least we're led to believe he lived in Capernaum. Certainly in Matthew's Gospel, it says that Jesus had a house or was at home in Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum was a place of around a thousand people in population, and uh, that's an artist's impression of the area. 
And we read in chapter one of his activity. We read that he was out walking on the beach one day near where he lived. And he called out to some guys, some people that became his disciples, basically said, leave your tools, come follow me, come be part of my mission, my plan, build God's kingdom and follow me. After this, he returns and enters the synagogue where he teaches people. He delivers a man from an unclean spirit and rescued them. It says in chapter 1, verse 27, that the people were amazed at Jesus' activity. He then enters Simon and Andrew's house and heals Simon. One of his disciples heals Simon's mother-in-law from a sickness, which is evidence that he was God because he loved mother-in-law enough to heal one, which is miraculous. Um, that's how God feels about mothers-in-law. And if perhaps you've been a skeptic and an atheist all your life and you've just realized maybe there is a God because look how he cares about mothers-in-law because who would do that? But that's what Jesus did. We then read that he goes throughout the region of Galilee and it says that he's preaching in their synagogues, which is basically their small religious meeting houses where they would teach from the law of God in the Old Testament. Uh, well, after preaching in their synagogues, it says in chapter 2, verse 1, that he then returns to Capernaum. We go to the next couple of slides. Here we go, next one. He returns to Capernaum, and now the map's going to start to get a bit messy. In Capernaum, it was reported that he was at home. As a result, a crowd gathers to Jesus. Um, it's so busy that people can't get in. So some, some guys have got a friend who's sick. They have to go up onto the roof. They bust a hole in the roof. Uh, people think it's Jesus' house. Scholars tend to think this is Jesus' house. They bust a hole in the roof, and they lower him down, and Jesus heals the man. Um, after this incident, we read of him then going out, walking on the beach again. While walking the beach, he calls Levi, who becomes Matthew, who is a tax collector, or basically a traitor of his native people. Matthew, so bowled over by Jesus' inclusion and acceptance that he throws a party and invites the neighborhood, and Jesus is there. We then read in chapter 2 of Jesus being out walking in the cornfields near his house, teaching his disciples. He then enters a synagogue, teaching again. And in chapter 3, verse 7, it says that he withdrew to the sea. Crowds follow him, so he gets into a boat to teach them. And actually, it's while in this boat or around this, this area, in chapter 3, verse 12, we read of Jesus again delivering a man from an unclean spirit, someone who'd been oppressed by a demon. And the demon cries out when it sees Jesus. I'll get up on the screen here. You are the Son of God. And Jesus strictly ordered them, People who heard this, not to make this known. Now we hear the phrase son of God and we think, well, the demon's declaring that Jesus is, you know, the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus is God. But in their day, the phrase son of God was more likely to be understood to mean king. Because if you would have asked anybody in Jesus' day, who's the son of God? They all would have said Caesar is. Because Caesar Augustus had spread the word that he was the son of a God. Sorry, this keep popping. He'd spread the word that he was the son of a God, meaning Julius Caesar. And so to the locals, to hear the phrase, son of God, they would have thought king. So when the demon cries out, you're the son of God, Jesus essentially says, don't tell anyone because that's how revolutions start. That's, that kind of talk is going to get me killed because there is a king. His name's Caesar. Chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus goes up on the mountaintop, teaches the crowds. We get Sermon on the Mount around that area. Again, then we read of him going back to Capernaum, to home. And it's while he's at home that his family come to seize him because they say he's out of his mind because of the things that he's saying. 
going around talking like a king, getting disciples, 12 of them, which again to the locals would have meant a new Israel, a new people like the Old Testament. The scribes, the religious professionals of Jesus' day say he's not just out of his mind, he's possessed by a demon. They say he's Beelzebub, uh, which you know, apart from appearing in Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, Beelzebub is the king, the prince of demons. And so they say he's not just um, a, ba- a, a deluded man, he's a bad man. And we then read of his mom and his brothers coming to visit him again. Uh, and Jesus says to the crowd, who are my mothers and brothers except those who do the will of God, which I'm sure made his mother and brothers feel very happy. But that's what he said. We then read that he goes out to sea. He gets into a boat to teach. And at this point, people are coming to hear Jesus teach. They've heard that he's the one that casts out demons. They've heard that he's the one that heals the sick. And so they gather to hear him from the south even, from the region of Judea where King Herod is. They're coming up. The news of Jesus has spread. And this is where Jesus starts to get more and more mobile in Mark's gospel. From after standing in the boat to teach, he goes to the region of the Gerasenes across there which is uh, the part of the Bible we looked at last week. After being in that region, the, the locals drive him out because, again, they're scared of him and his power and what he's able to do. So he goes to the other side. After being in the other side, he then goes to Nazareth, the place that he grew up, the place that he spent 30 years of his life, we, we're told. At Nazareth, he's rejected. People think, we know Jesus. This is Joseph and Mary's boy. And now what's all this he's saying about himself? Why should we listen to him? Jesus says a prophet's without honor in his hometown. So he goes through the villages teaching people. He goes to the region of, the, of Gennesaret. He goes then to Tyre and Sidon, up into the, the northwest. And next slide. Uh, next one, there we go. He goes from there up into Tyre and Sidon. And uh, from there, he, uh, he comes back to the Decapolis. From there, he then goes to Bethsaida. From there, he goes to Caesarea Philippi, again further north. In, in non-Jewish territory, a lot of this. And then in, not, in chapter 9, verse 33, we read that he returns to Capernaum. He's in his house. He's having a conversation with his disciples. And in chapter 10, he leaves for Judea in the south. And in Judea, he visits Jericho, goes to Jerusalem, and he's killed as a would-be king. Pilate strings him up on a cross with a sign above his head saying, here's Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. We said last week there's an irony in that. Nazareth, king, it's a term of mockery. I wanted us to see this map because apart from anything else, it shows us the locality of Jesus. It shows us that he was a small town guy who went to the backwaters, the highways and byways, the small villages, the nowhere places, places with not very large populations, certainly not the places of influence, didn't go to Rome didn't go to Jerusalem very much, apart from, uh, in Mark's gospel, at least toward the end of his life, to be killed. Uh, he didn't go to bigger cities and ports. And just... I also wanted us to see the concrete realities that the Bible presents. It talks about boats and cornfields and houses and traveling. And see, one scholar says that rarely did Jesus go more than a day's journey away. So consequently, some people believe he'd go teach for a day and then come back home every day. He rarely traveled more than 10, 20 miles in a day. Some people think he had a home in Capernaum. Jesus himself said, well, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he both had a home or a base, but he was also a wandering teacher, preacher, often homeless. The point is that Jesus knew his area well. 
He knew what it was like to see the views over his region. He knew what the, you know, he, he did the whole Maximus from Gladiator thing where you walk through the cornfields brushing your hand across the corn. He's an, a man of the earth. He wasn't a, some pie in the sky kind of float on a cloud guru who just retreated and expected people to, I don't know, climb up a mountain and come and sit and listen to him. He taught from mountains, but he ministered among the people. And now I want us to come to this question. So given that that's Jesus' activity, the question is, what did the locals think of him? And to answer that, we're going to read something from Mark's Gospel again, chapter 2 at the beginning. We alluded to it earlier where he calls a man called Levi that later becomes Matthew, the writer of the Gospel, Matthew. So Mark chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 13 to 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a doctor or a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, I came to call sinners. In answering the question, what did the locals think of him? The first thing we can say is they loved him. They threw parties for him. He was, as a man, people liked him. His character was well received. They could tell that he was a thoughtful man. They could tell that he was a kind man. He included the outsiders. He was a religious leader, a man on a pedestal by society. But he was a man of the people. But he wasn't like a politician who just did it for display, shake hands and kiss babies' heads. Jesus actually lived like that because that's how he was. He was a local enough man that people knew if he was putting it on, but instead they threw parties for him because they could see that his talk matched his walk. His lifestyle mirrored the things that he said. And actually later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who um, founded a lot of churches in in the area, he writes of the description or the requirements for leadership in, in Christian circles. And one of the things he says is they must be well thought of by outsiders. You want to be an elder, he says you've got to be well thought of by outsiders. Again, probably with Jesus' kind of model or reputation in mind. He was well thought of by outsiders. So let's look at this. How then can we be a good local? How do we demonstrate that we love this town? You know, when you go, I don't know if they have it in the the borough of Lewis, but certainly the Eastbourne borough, all of the the bins that they provide people, because in Lewis they don't provide people with bins, but in Eastbourne uh, they provide people with bins. And on the bins it says, love where you live. You think, well, that's lovely for a bin. But as a church, we should have that as a strap line, love where you live. So how do we then, how can we, each of us, learn to be a good local, learn to blossom where we're planted? Five things. Number one. Learn to enjoy small talk, lots of it. (laughs) Last week I said that part of the beauty of living in Seaford or New Haven or Peace Haven is that people love to chat or they're willing to chat. 
It's one of the first things I noticed when I moved just 10 miles from Eastbourne to Seaford. I was surprised because the conversations I had with people were often more than just transactional. It wasn't just, you know, here's your shopping, have a nice day. It was, how are you? Where are you from? How long have you been here? I was caught by surprise. And actually, I don't think this is, the, I don't think this is just unique or peculiar to Seaford. It's small towns in general. Uh, Donny Griggs, who I quoted last week, planted a church in a small town in America. He said he has friends who are Zulu. And back in South Africa, he said his Zulu friends said they were often late for meetings because they had to walk everywhere. Donnie said at first he thought this is just because they have to walk and it takes a long time. Um, but after getting to know them, they said the trouble was you'd have to walk everywhere. And the custom was that you had to, whoever you met, you had to engage in full conversations with them. You had to stop and talk. It's the same in South Africa as it is in Seafood. And as it turns out, more and more South Africans are living in Seafood. It's lovely to have you with us. Lekka. Um, now, for those of us who want to learn to love our small towns, we want to use this to our advantage. We, we need to learn, firstly, to enjoy small talk, which I know not all of us do. Um, it is something that we do need to learn. We need to join the culture that we're living in. We can't pretend that this is a big city where people don't care if you don't talk to them. No, you have to be willing to talk. Ask people about their well-being. Throw parties at Christmas. Invite your neighbors over. Uh, or if nothing else, just learn people's names devise a strategy if you need to for learning people's names. It was Dale Carnegie who wrote the book How to Win Friends and Influence People, one of the most popular self-help books ever written. But in 1936, he wrote this book and he said even then, he said a person's name is the sweetest sound that they hear. And so if you want to show people that you care about them, use their name often. I suppose salespeople would probably tell you this as well. Now, it can be hard. We do need to learn uh, we all know those people that when you see them approaching, you think, oh, they're friendly, but if I talk to them, I'm going to be late. <laughs> and I'm amazed sometimes the amount of people that I talk to and think, you don't even need me to be in this conversation. In fact, you, we've been talking, talking for 10 minutes, and I don't think I've said anything other than, uh-huh, <laughs> lovely. And I'm amazed. I don't know how people do that. Maybe, maybe I'm guilty of that at times. I'm sure I am. But I find it a challenge. I have a, one particular neighbor who I'm thinking of. Um, He's a lovely, lovely man. But it is hard for me to look him in the eye when he walks past because I know if I engage him, I will basically be a, a talking cardboard cutout version of myself for a long time as he just talks at me. So, I don't know. I think some of you um, people have devised this strategy in your marriages. I'm just going to get a cardboard cutout and that's probably going to be just as useful. Um, probably shouldn't have said that bit. Okay. Um, it is important. Donny Griggs, again, he, he writes this in his book on small towns. He says, always acting like you have somewhere better to be will eventually lead you to unnecessarily offending residents in small towns. As we know, in small towns, word travels fast. Small talk doesn't make you feel high-powered. It doesn't do your ego good because it's not transactional. It's not buy, sell, yes, right, good, I'm off, I'm important, I'm charged, click, mine, vote for this, like this. It's not transactional, it's not high-powered, but it matters, and it matters because people matter. So we need to learn to enjoy small talk. Secondly, we need to, if we can, shop local as much as possible. One person tells about one of their proudest moments in their small town as a pastor when um, the, the owners of a, of a local shop gave him a T-shirt that said staff, even though he wasn't a staff member, because he was there so much, and he was so well-liked by the staff. But when you're familiar enough with a place 
that they let you serve your own drinks or serve other people drinks. You know, we've had some of us have had that where we're known so well at a pub um, that they let you serve your own drink or serve other people. When you're when you're known and liked so much that people behave like that, it's incredibly honoring of the area and it shows that people have accepted you into their small town. Or if you're asked to watch the shop while the owner pops out for a bit, all signs you're a good local. The temptation for us, of course, in an internet age, um, in an age of austerity, is to always shop around to get the cheapest deals wherever we can. I'm guilty of this, certainly. Someone with a small family, I'll, I'll buy my groceries online. I'll get it the cheapest I can. I'll drive to the supermarkets in Lewis just because it's cheaper or it's more convenient, perhaps. But actually, for those of us who want to love where we live and learn to be a good local, it's important. Or if, if we can't bring ourselves to shop local, we need to buy local newspapers. We need to know what's going on in our area. We need to, I don't know, study Seaford Notice Board on Facebook and learn about who's lost their cat and um, on what day of the week a police siren went past. And goodness me, what happened? Um, we need to answer questions when people say, did anybody see this erratic driver of the red car on this state in this part of the town? You need to read that so you hear people's concerns. Um, yeah, I could say something else, but I won't. So number three, eat local and love local food. How to be a good local? Eat local, love local food. You know, Seaford has 53 places to eat. 53 places to eat. Have you eaten at them all? There's two bakeries, one butchers, no candlestick makers, but there is a fishmonger's. Uh, New Haven has 35 different places to eat. Peace Haven has 23 different places to eat. Eat at them. <laughs> eat local. Enjoy local food. Help local businesses. Be a great tipper. Write little notes, nice encouraging messages on the receipts. Treat the waiting staff like they are persons who have a life outside of just delivering you iced water. Engage people. Learn their names. As I mentioned last week, perhaps just pick a coffee shop and go to that same one time and time again so you get known. And the other thing is don't give bad reviews online or TripAdvisor or those places. I know this will take some restraint for some of us because we feel like it's our democratic responsibility to tell people that they serve bad burgers over there. But in small towns, it's dishonoring of the places that you live. If you don't like somewhere, don't go back. <laughs> that's, the, that's the adult way to deal with something sometimes. You're not a food critic. <laughs> And actually, when we're in the process, many of you know, of buying our own building. We're going to be purchasing, God willing, Crossway, uh, the church opposite the Duke of Wellington pub. And so in times to come, we'll be able to have Sunday meetings and say, right, let's all nip over to the pub for Sunday lunch. We need to get a reputation such that the waiting staff in the Duke of Wellie look forward to Sunday afternoons. They think, oh, good, the church are here. They give good tips. They don't complain. They're not nasty people. Oh, good. We need to put more waiting staff on because it's helping our business. If you love where you live, you'll be concerned with something like that. Actually, food, food is a fast track to people's hearts. And so, I don't know, I'm sure I'm talking to lots of foodies, I know. Um, but we need to, I don't know, offer food out as often as we can. Bake cakes for your neighbors. Um, always have stuff in your home, perhaps, for people to eat. I know when I visit um, John and Abby's house, Abby's always baking. And every time you go around, there's the smell of freshly baked something. And she never eats any of it herself. Um, so we have to help. And so I'm quite willing to do my service for the Bowyer household. But again, their community, their close is often in and out of that home because food does that. So those are three things. Number four, um, number four, identify local. 
show interest in your neighbor's activities uh, in their lives and in their worlds. If, if you want people to come to your stuff, you first of all need to be willing to go to their territory. You need to go around to their house to watch the boxing match or the football. You need to be willing to go to their hog and grog night. If you want, if you want them to be involved in your world, you need to do the same for them. We need to be those who are willing and happy to cross all kinds of social barriers for the sake of loving where we live and getting to know the local area. When I lived in Eastbourne, um, I went to the local mosque a few times to just befriend and meet my Muslim uh, neighbours. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I got to watch them have their Friday prayers. They then invited me to a Quran study where we all sat around and ate dates. I felt like I was in a little bit of the Middle East. And they were talking about a passage in the Old Testament that I was familiar with. So it was interesting just to watch that. Or I know I got invited once to go to the New Age Health Clinic in, uh, in Eastbourne. And again, I went there for this seminar where they were talking about time management and meditation. And so I listened and shared as a Christian, this is what I do. This is how I practice things. And I was just willing to cross those barriers just to show people the church don't need to hide in bunkers and run away from the world. We don't need to block our ears to bad language. We need to engage people, meet people where they're at, identify with the locals. And actually, I think the best example of this that I've heard is um, Chris and Jill. A number of years ago, uh, Chris heard that many, many people who've moved to the UK um, who aren't English have never been invited into an English person's home. And so Chris, hearing this, went to his local Chinese and went to invite the owner there to his house for dinner or for a drink. Just invite him around. His name was Kevin. And he told Jill he was going to do it so that he couldn't chicken out. So he went to invite Kevin to around his house. And Kevin said yes and came to his home. Got to know Kevin. Ended up going swimming with Kevin most Sunday afternoons um, for a couple of years or for some time at least. A lady arrived from China and Kevin and this lady got engaged. Chris and Jill got to know this couple. Eventually they got married and, and Chris gave this lady away uh, at the wedding. It was in Chinatown in London. They were the only two non-Chinese people in the room and they were given uh, ducks, tongues and chicken feet to eat, which sounds lovely. <laughs> it didn't start with ducks, tongues and chicken feet. It started with someone saying, I'm going to go and get to know this person who lives in my town and invite them into my home, show them that I love them. Uh, during the summer, we ran uh, a couple of fun days in the Chinkton area. We just invited the local residents to come and play volleyball, to, uh, play football and stuff. And um, there was one person who turned up who um, was a Christian, not in the church here, so I can say this. <laughs> um, it was a Christian, and they said, oh, what are you doing? And I explained what we're doing it and, and why. And they said, oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> it just really annoyed me, probably because I'm proud. I don't like to be called sweet. Sweet and cute are not two words that I think, oh, good, someone's called me sweet or cute. But she said, oh, that's really sweet. And I thought to myself, well, it's not really sweet. It's, it's what missionaries do. <laughs> it's what people who love the area that they live do. We're here to love these people. We're here to identify local. And that's an important part of being a good local, I believe. Fifthly and lastly on how to be a good local, be a blessing. Be a blessing and not a burden. Offer help. Volunteer. When you say you're going to do something, be reliable. Turn up. I have a vision, a goal, a dream for myself, a dream for members of this church. 
in time. I want to be the kind of person and I want members of this church to be the kinds of people that other people joke about and say, they should be mayor. They love this place so much. I want this to be a church that is essentially the spiritual pastor of the town and a town that's post-Christian and a town that's secular. That's a big ambition. But again, I mean, to quote Frederick Nietzsche of all people, what's needed is a long obedience in the same direction. If we're those who are willing to say, I'm going to just love where I live and I'm going to serve, I'm going to be reliable, I'm going to volunteer, I'm going to look to be a blessing wherever I can. I'm going to get to know people by name over time. We can be those who can also pray for people in need. We're going to be those that people turn to when they hit a crisis. I uh, was at a wedding yesterday talking to someone from Seaford who's an atheist, and um, they wanted to have an atheist v. Christian chat. Um, so we had an atheist v. Christian chat, and hopefully I was gracious and kind. But at the end of it, he said to me, he said, I've never disagreed with someone so much and yet also had so much respect for them. And I thought, I think that's a compliment. <laughs> I think that's good. But that's who we want to be, those who are a blessing. So how to be a good local? Learn to enjoy small talk, lots of it. Shop local as much as possible. Eat local. Love local food. Identify local and be a blessing. So the first question we asked, and this was, that was the longer one, was <laughs> what did the people think of Jesus? He said that they loved him enough to throw parties for him. Also, the reality is that they rejected him. Um, just up on the screen here, it says this, that we, we alluded to it, that when Jesus went home, a crowd gathered again. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they saying he's out of his mind. Jesus was a man who was liked, but his message was rejected, particularly by those who knew him. Um, honoring and loving your hometown isn't always going to result in people loving us, liking us, throwing parties for us. And actually reaching your own town, reaching your family can be the hardest people to love and to serve and to reach because they know you inside out. <laughs> I often think that it's um, my family who are most surprised that I'm a pastor of a church because they know how deeply selfish and self-centered I am. They know how much of an effort it is to get me to do the washing up, those kinds of things. But also they, they know my views and they're not interested. I mean, I've shared before that when my dad was dying of cancer a number of years ago, I found it the hardest thing in the world to talk to him about faith. I, mean, I can stand in a room and talk to people like this um, I can talk to people I don't know very well, but to talk to those who are closest can be very, very hard. And I, I remember on one occasion going to visit the family, and um, for about a week I'd been praying, God, give me courage. I find this so hard. They're not interested in faith. They're not interested in you, but I really want to tell them that you love them. And so I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. I, I, it's the thing in my life that's required the most courage. And all I did, when I was at home with my dad one afternoon, and I just all I said to him was, I plucked up a tremendous amount of courage. He said, Dad, I know you don't believe in God. I do. And he loves you. And what followed was just a mess of tears. And that was as far as it went. And we had a hug and we chatted. And actually before the end of his life, I was able to share the gospel with him in a number of different ways. But I appreciate sharing the message of God's love with those that we love the most can be very, very hard. And it doesn't always go well. It doesn't always mean that they're going to say, oh, you're what a lovely local you are. <laughs> It resulted in Jesus being rejected. But, again, as the Apostle Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good, because in due season you will reap a harvest. It might not be the harvest you're expecting. And Jesus' family came round, much more than just coming round to the idea. 
Um, his brother James became a leader in the early church and ended up writing a letter that we have in our Bibles. I mean, again, that's further evidence that you're God, not just you care about mothers-in-law, but your brother who grew up with you is prepared at the end of his life to go, yeah, my brother was God. <laughs> that takes a lot for a brother to say something nice about his brother, but for James, he wrote it. Mary um, was taken in by the church and lived with John. Uh, history tells us in the town of Ephesus and was part of the church there for a number of years. And when you visit the town, they can say, look, that was Mary's house. So what did they think of Jesus? They loved him, but they also rejected him. And very, very briefly, second question, why did the Son of God behave like this? I mean, we, I showed the map at the beginning of just kind of the mess of him walking around his region and soaking himself in this small area. Why did he do that? I used to go often when I went on a holiday with my family. My, my dad would insist on us walking miles and miles and miles from the I don't know, train station to our hotel to the point that we got blisters on our feet and we all hated the holiday by the end of day one. And he would always repeat, I mean, it's like a family mantra, the best way to get to know a place is to walk around it. <laughs> the best place to see a place is to walk it. Like, yes, but we're here for a week and I've got my blisters on my feet now. But is that what Jesus was doing? Is that why he walked and got to know his area? Was he a tourist? And just thought, oh, the best place to know the area is to walk it. Well, he wasn't trying to get to know the area from a tourist's point of view. He was trying to experience life and see life under the sun. It can never be said of the Christian God that he doesn't know what our life is like. It can never be said of our God that he's unfeeling towards our plight and our condition. We might wave our fist and say, God, why don't you sort this? But we can never say, you don't know what it's like. Because he says, I do. I walked it. I spoke to the locals. I sat with dying people. I visited funerals. I cried at funerals. And actually much more than that, Jesus, in his own words that we read in, in chapter 217 in the Bible, he says, the healthy have no need for a doctor. I've come for the sick. Those who think they're impressive and got it all together, often those that go to the city to make their name, sometimes driven by ego, particularly I know as a, as a young man, I see that in me. I'm a young man, I'm not so young now, but um, I suppose I am compared to some of you. That's a digression. Um, <laughs> I, have a funny, I have a funny story. No point, but I was, again, I was talking to some friends recently in the church, and I said, oh, you've been in ministry for a long time. You could give me lots of advice. And his wife said, oh, no, he's not been in ministry long, just since 1980. She was deadly serious. Just not very long, just since 1980. Longer than I've been alive. <laughs> but I, I see that within me, the desire for notoriety and importance. I'll go to those places. The Son of God came to the backwaters, to the villages, to the places without decent sanitation and running water in a desperately poor society, in a desperately poor time in history. He went to the waifs and the strays he called those in the highways and the byways to himself. Again, to quote Dale Carnegie, he said, a great man shows his greatness by the way he treats little men. Look at how Jesus treats little men. So on the one hand, the Son of God behaved in the way that he did because of his love for the little men and women. But on the other hand, he behaved in a way he did because of someone in the Old Testament. King David is a man many of us know because of David and Goliath fame. King David was revered and remembered as being the most influential and celebrated king in God's people's history. And King David was anointed as king as a young man. 
as a young boy. And nothing changed for many years. And in fact, he was pursued by the then king out into the remote parts of the country. King David called people from the towns and the villages to come to him in the wilderness. He had a band of merry men, David's mighty men, and they traveled the area. David traveled the local small areas, eventually slowly gathering momentum. David became king by essentially developing a groundswell of movement and activity in the rural parts of Israel. And then eventually David goes to Jerusalem and becomes king. So it is with Jesus. He's intentionally, the way he lived his life is intentionally mirroring different Old Testament figures. In this situation, David, in the small parts of Israel, gathering a following, gaining a reputation to the point that it's not just the demons who are saying he's the son of God, he's the king. He then eventually rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and the little children call out, Hosanna in the highest. Our God has come back to save us, to deliver us from the Romans. He's here. When Jesus went to Jerusalem, that's exactly what they did. They crowned him, but they didn't crown him with gold and splendor. They put a robe on him, but it wasn't in celebration and recognition of who he was. They crowned him with a crown of thorns and they put a robe of purple on him, mocked him and beat him with a stick and cried out, Hail, King of the Jews. That's our God. That's what he did. He is the king, but he's a king like no other. He's a king who doesn't march into small towns and say, here I am, bow down. He's a king who marches into small towns and says, here I am to serve. And then he's a king who goes to the cities to be crowned. But his crowning is a crowning of humiliation and shame. He knows what it is to experience shame, to be disowned by his family, to have his family members say, he's out of his mind, he's a religious nut. Some of us know what that's like as well for our family to say, don't get into that religion thing. Jesus identifies with us. Ultimately, that's what local living is really about. It's about loving the people around us. And actually, no matter how hard we try, we're unable to love our local areas in the way that we'd like to. But it's for people like us that Jesus came, that Jesus died. It's for small towns that Jesus came, that Jesus died. And his offer is the same offer now as it was then. As they strung him up on the cross, having hailed him as a king and exposed him to public ridicule and shame, his offer was, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They're just city folk. They're just small town folk. They're just little men and little women. Father, forgive them. Pardon them. That's what our God says to you today. He invites you to join him in loving your area, being a small town gal, small town guy. But he offers forgiveness, the removal of your shame, the removal of your guilt, and pardon forevermore, living in relationship with him. I'm going to pray. The band are going to join me, and we're going to respond together by singing and celebrating this God together. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you haven't rejected us. You haven't wiped your hands clean of us. Thank you that you rolled up your sleeves and got messy with us. I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters, my friends today. Ask God that you would help each of us to love where we live. Ask that we would get that reputation in the town, 
of loving this area. I do pray, God, that in time people would joke about us. You should be mayor. You love this place so much. And I pray, Father, for those who don't yet know you, I ask that they today would take that step of coming to know you and of receiving your offer of forgiveness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.